I now turn to our scripture lesson for this morning's sermon as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We come to chapter 12 and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. We read the first three verses last time. We spoke about the fact that Jesus is Lord and now we're going to include those verses in our understanding that there is one spirit many gifts, that the Holy Spirit gives many gifts to different individual Christians. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's Holy Word. As we know, this was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is therefore the inerrant word of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, But it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's uh, briefly come before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do thank you again for your written word. We thank you that you have poured out your Holy Spirit upon the church and given diverse gifts to the church, giving it to di- giving those gifts to different individuals. We pray now that as we open your word, as we seek to understand it, as I exposit it here before your people, that it might take root in us. We pray, therefore, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time, as I mentioned, we concentrated on the fact which Paul states in verse 3, that Jesus is Lord. We noted that true faith is the work of the Holy Spirit last week. Now, that's part of a broader argument Paul is making here. As we will see in the weeks to come, Paul is actually countering an overemphasis that some in the Corinthian congregation here have made on the extraordinary gifts, particularly the gift of tongues, Uh, This was a gift given to some in the early church as a sign of the Holy Spirit's presence in their midst. Uh, The first time it's recorded is in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell upon Jesus' disciples, as he had promised that the Spirit would, and there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and that sound attracted people from all around the neighborhood, all around the city, and they gathered to find out what was going on. And among the onlookers were Jews who had come from all over the known world. Remember, this is Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. 
And uh, many had probably made the journey to Jerusalem for, uh, for Passover seven weeks earlier and had stayed for this. But there were people for this festival from all over the known world. And they observed that these Galileans who tended to be uneducated. And by the way, when, when we read about the apostles being uneducated or being considered uneducated, uh, that didn't mean they couldn't read at all. Sometimes our Bibles will say illiterate. Uh, most, most Jewish men could read Hebrew. Uh, but it would have meant that they weren't educated in rhetoric or in, in, uh, in scholarly Greek or things like that. They certainly wouldn't have been learning the Persian language and the language of the Cretans and things like that. But here these Galileans were able to speak the native languages of these people who had come from far and wide. Jews who had grown up in all manner of different cultures, even though they had no natural way of having learned those languages. There wasn't uh, any kind of language learning software for them to get a hold of and and, uh, learn any language they wanted. And there weren't uh, schools that they could go to and just pick a language and say, well, I'll learn that one. You know, they, they would have known the Greek that was used internationally as sort of the international language of commerce at that point, the Koine Greek, the common Greek, and they would have known Aramaic otherwise. That was the common language spoken in Galilee. The miracle that they could speak these languages they had never naturally learned confirmed that the disciples were speaking the truth from God. And this extraordinary sign was given on a few other occasions in the book of Acts to confirm that the Holy Spirit was bringing new groups of people into his church, Samaritans and and Gentiles. Now once the New Testament was completed, so for us and ever since the, the first century really, such signs are really no longer needed. Throughout Scripture, God gives miraculous signs to confirm Uh, that his prophets are speaking for him, that the apostles are speaking for him. Once the Bible is completed, we don't really need those extraordinary signs, as we already have in Peter's words, as he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, that the word made more sure, the prophetic word made more sure. But when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, such extraordinary signs were still present in the church, and of course, such things are exciting. That's why people today try to reproduce it, I think. And, uh, especially the experience of speaking miraculously in a language that you didn't learn in any natural way. And so, uh, some developed an overemphasis of, on such gifts, uh, especially tongues, as better than other gifts. And we'll see that coming up in chapter 14, for example, when we get there, Lord willing. Paul's main point here, though, is that all true believers have the Holy Spirit. It's not as if only people who speak in tongues have the Holy Spirit. All true believers have the Holy Spirit. And underneath that fact, then, Paul teaches, number one, believers must not be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts and start thinking, for example, that one is better than another. Secondly, the Holy Spirit gives diverse gifts to Christ's people. He doesn't give the same gift to each individual Christian. And thirdly, the gifts the Holy Spirit gives each Christian are to be used for the benefit of the whole church and not simply to bolster the praise or the glory of an individual who received that gift. Again, we established last week that Paul's statement in verse 3 is not just about being able to repeat the words, Jesus is Lord, 
when he says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. But you have to mean it. Anybody could repeat the words and not mean it. But it means having a genuine saving faith, as we dug into Scripture last time. We saw that's really what that means. And you can't have that genuine saving faith and recognize Jesus as Lord for who he really is, that he is Yahweh, that he is the king of the universe, that he is your personal Lord and Savior. You can't do that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul writes, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can have genuine saving faith apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, to put it the other way around, everyone who with, with the true saving faith has the Holy Spirit. If you are showing fruit that your profession of faith is genuine, it means the Holy Spirit is working in you. And that's Paul's main point here. If there were some who were emphasizing one spiritual gift over all the others, they were likely claiming that the only way to know that you really have the Holy Spirit is if you speak in tongues. And Paul says, well, to use the technical theological term, that's poppycock. All true believers have the Holy Spirit. And they have different gifts. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, he says. And as we've noted recently, Romans 8 9 tells us, but you are not in the flesh, he's talking to Christians, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So in other words, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And then Romans 9 11, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So twice in that same verse, Paul says, the Holy Spirit dwells in you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. All true believers have the Holy Spirit. Well, along with that fact, then, Paul teaches these three things that I mentioned already in this passage. Number one, believers must not be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. Verse one, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. There's, it is not a praiseworthy thing when we are ignorant of things that God wants us to know. And then in verse 2, he cautions, You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. He's noting that before they were Christians, most of the Corinthian brethren, yes, some of them were Jews prior to this, well, they, of course, were still Jewish ethnically, uh, they were... Uh, the, the gospel was first preached by Paul in the synagogue at Corinth, but most of the Corinthian brethren had been pagans prior to their conversion to Christ. They had been part of the pagan nations. That's what the word Gentiles means. They worshipped idols. And notice that he emphasizes that they were led into this worship of idols. The Greek is, is really emphatic. It literally says something like, you know that nations you were, so that is nations foreign to Israel, foreign to God's people you were, to the idols dumb you were led, being led away. So you were led to idols that can't speak, and then he emphasizes being led away. So they were led, he says, into the worship of idols that could not speak, 
Satan had power to deceive the nations, and they were deceived. And as we saw back in chapter 10, verse 20, the worship of idols was encouraged and bolstered by demons. Yes, on the one hand, we saw that idols are nothing. But on the other hand, demons are happy to encourage us to think those idols are something. And so, he says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Notice, by the way, that Paul says these brethren were, past tense, Gentiles. Whether their background was Greek or Scythian or whatever else, whatever their background, they are now of the true spiritual Israel. They are God's covenant people. And we know that the pagan religions popular around Corinth that many of these people would have engaged in at that time often involved ecstatic experiences. People would use drugs or alcohol or wild dancing and other methods to induce an altered state of consciousness, a physiological or psychological experience, which the ignorant mistook for a true spiritual experience. And Paul says here, I don't want you to be ignorant and mistake those things for a true spiritual experience. We're also aware that that such religious practices sometimes involved inviting a spirit to come and inhabit your body. Much like in shamanism or in the modern religions of voodoo or santeria, where the goal in many of the rituals is to be possessed by some spirit. We might note that people taking mind-altering substances in our own day, like ayahuasca, often have uh, report having shared experiences of encountering beings uh, that claim to teach them spiritual truths. Now, I haven't dug into that to see if their shared experiences can supposedly can be debunked or not, but let's say for the sake of argument that, that uh, two of us here take this mind-altering substance and then we see the same thing. That's, that's not just a psychological experience if that's what's going on. There's something spiritual going on. If you and I see the exact same being and we hear him saying the exact same words while we take that drug, uh, that's pretty suggestive that there's something very dark going on there. Similarly, people involved in the occult or who have supposed experiences with aliens, and by the way, the Venn diagram for that really overlaps a lot. Um, People who think that they've encountered these kinds of beings, these beings almost always seem to go out of their way to tell them at some point, Jesus is not God. Well, who in the world would want people to think that Jesus is not God? I remember one... uh, one apologist I heard years ago asking, why, uh, why is it that, I think I said this recently to you, why is it that these aliens supposedly come from all, halfway across the universe just to tell us things that New Agers were already telling us? Um, so in that sense, some of these participants in pagan religious rites might have been having a genuine spiritual experience, but it was a dark spiritual experience. They were having experiences with spirits, but what Paul calls in Ephesians 6, 12, spiritual hosts of wickedness, not the Holy Spirit. Many Bible scholars think that the overemphasis of speaking on tongues that was going on here in Corinth came 
from a desire to recreate those kinds of experiences that they had had, those wild and ecstatic experiences, but in a more acceptable Christian context. We often bring much of our previous way of thinking with us into our Christian life. Believers should not be ignorant, Paul says, about spiritual gifts, thinking that they're about having some ecstatic experience. Sadly, many in the New Apostolic Reformation and the word faith movement in our day labor to create similar ecstatic experiences among the worshipers. And it's hardly surprising, as the doctrines that they teach can actually be traced historically back to the occult and not to the Bible. And these people are leading others farther and farther away from true experience of the Holy Spirit and into, at best, merely psychological experiences or, at worst, into demonic experiences. Paul says, so don't be ignorant about these things. Also, believers, as we will see, should not be so ignorant of spiritual gifts as to think that everyone has to have the same gift. And that brings us then to our point number two this morning. The Holy Spirit gives diverse gifts to Christ's people. Verses 4 through 6, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. In his letters, when Paul talks about God the Father, he often just says God. And when he says Lord, he usually means God the Son, Jesus. Uh, So notice here, he's really speaking of the triune God. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God, he says. The Father has decreed a variety of activities for his people. Christ has therefore given different ministries, different areas of service to different Christians, to his people. And so the Spirit has given the gifts necessary to each person to enable each one to carry out that ministry that Christ has given him or her. Paul offers a few examples in verses 8 through 10. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Notice he's emphasizing the same Spirit's giving different gifts to different people. You can't expect everybody to have the same gift. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. So notice these these fall into three basic categories. There are gifts that connect with understanding, with teaching, uh, what are often called pedagogical gifts, the word of wisdom and word of knowledge, gifts that demonstrate supernatural power, uh, faith, healings, and miracles. So so he's not talking about saving faith there. We'll get into what he means here in a minute. And then gifts that have to do with communication, prophecy, discernment of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Those connected with the understanding or teaching, again, what's often called pedagogical gifts, uh, are the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. It's, the word of wisdom is this ability to understand and to teach the wisdom of God that we learned about back in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, that is through human wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
and then chapter 2, verses seven, uh, 6 and 7. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, and yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in, in mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages. So as we saw back when we were studying chapters 1 and 2, uh, that refers to the gospel, to the message of the cross of Christ and its application from the whole counsel of God's words. So those people who, can, who have the gift to start you with the gospel and get you deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into God's word, that's the people with the gift of the word of wisdom. And then, then there's the word of knowledge. It's a similar gift, unlike the way that this term is misused, in the modern word faith movement, which uh, perverts it into something like having a psychic impression, you know, or somebody will be on television and they'll say, I, I, I have this feeling there's somebody in Baltimore, Maryland with some back pain, and that back pain is going away right now. I'll prove it. Um, but that's not the word of knowledge. This is a word, the ability to communicate the gospel clearly to others. Think of 1 John 2.13. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. So there's knowledge there that's important. And Paul Peter tells us that we should be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Such knowledge of uh, God's intimate closeness to the believer that the believer, this intimate closeness the believer has with the Lord. And some have the gift for communicating the gospel by which that closeness comes. Then there are those gifts that overtly demonstrate that God uh, in His, uh, that God is at work supernaturally. Uh, faith, so this is not simply saving faith, every Christian has that, so we wouldn't say some have faith, right? <laughs> say all of us have faith or we're not Christians. Uh, but this is a faith that, uh, in Jesus' words in Matthew 17.20, moves mountains. Uh, an expression that refers often to the ability to change cultures or to do things that seem impossible. In the apostolic age, we never actually read of somebody literally moving a mountain, but we do see cultures changed radically and people enduring amazing things for the sake of the gospel in the apostolic age, such faith was often demonstrated with miracles. Then there's healings. Again, this was a common overt sign that God gave to confirm his messengers. People were preaching the gospel and they were healing people who were sick. God can certainly supernaturally heal someone still. And I believe I've encountered some cases where healings happened that were inexplicable, humanly speaking. And we pray for such healings frequently when someone is ill. But we don't see it on the scale that's recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, those overt supernatural signs confirmed the, the message of the apostles, that the apostles were Christ's messengers. And then, of course, he mentions working of miracles. That's literally workings of powers. This is a, a general term for all signs and wonders that God performs to confirm his message. Everything from Paul raising Eutychus from the dead to his being uh, unharmed when a deadly serpent bit his hand and he just shook it off into the fire or, or when he 
uh, miraculously blinded the sorcerer Elimas. Lastly, Paul lists the gifts that have to do with communication. So uh, those were the more miraculous, overtly miraculous gifts, and then we have these gifts of communication, whereas wisdom and knowledge are about the ability to teach the gospel and dig into the scriptures. Uh, These have to do with messages from God that God was giving the the church in the apostolic era uh, before the New Testament was, was completed. Prophecy, the telling forth of God's word. The apostles and others received messages from God, uh, which they were commanded to proclaim. Think of Agabus in the book of Acts telling, telling everybody hey, in the church at Antioch there's about to be a famine, particularly around Judea. Discerning of spirits, to understand what Paul means, we might refer to 1 John 4, 2, and 3, where John says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not come, confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So there, the notion of a spirit being, uh, whether it's literally a spirit or just a, uh, an idea of a message, anything coming, teaching that Jesus is not truly human is not from God in that context there. I couple that with the possibility that some were inducing ecstatic, you know, sort, sort of pseudo-spiritual experiences, and it even may have been blaspheming Christ as they did so, as verse 3 suggests, and we see that that this was a gift that had to do with telling which messages clearly came from God and which ones didn't. Who was a true prophet? Who was a false prophet? Next, there are different kinds of tongues. As we see in Acts, this is the miraculous ability to speak God's message in a language that the messenger had never naturally learned. Similar as the last the gift, uh, interpretation of tongues, the ability to understand a foreign language miraculously. Again, for the purpose of getting the gospel to more people, not for showing off how awesome the person who has the gift is. So Paul has offered these quick examples of some spiritual gifts. In verse 11, he again emphasizes that each of these different gifts is given to different individual Christians, but they come from the same spirit who indwells every believer. But one in the same spirit works all these things, he says, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So it's up to God, not up to us, who gets what what gift. And that every one of these gifts came from God, and every one of them is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within a person, not just one gift that we might think is more flashy or showy or entertaining. That brings us to our Point number three, the gifts the Holy Spirit gives to each believer are to be used for the benefit of the whole church. Verse seven, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each for the profit of all. As Matthew Henry writes in his commentary, the Spirit was manifested by the exercise of these gifts. His influence and interest appeared in them, but they were not distributed for the mere honor and advantage of those who had them, but for the benefit of the church, to edify the body and spread and advance the gospel. As we'll see as we go on uh, in the letter, Lord willing, we'll see that Paul says he likes, he has a, a, a favor of prophecy over tongues because it's more edifying to the church. So, Matthew Henry continues, says, No, whatever gifts God confers on any man, he confers them that he may do good with them, whether they be common or spiritual, 
The outward gifts of his bounty are to be improved for his glory and employed in doing good to others. No man has them merely for himself. They are a trust put into his hands to profit with all. That means to profit everybody. And the more he profits others with them, the more abundantly they will turn to his account in the end. Spiritual gifts are bestowed that men may with them profit the church and promote Christianity. They are not given for show, but for service, not for pomp and ostentation, but for edification, not to magnify those who have them, but to edify others. So all true believers have the Holy Spirit. If you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, you'll have a faith that produces good works. Well, then you must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and therefore you must not be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. You have at least one. Do not mistake the world's ideas of spirituality for the true spirituality and the true gifts that God gives, but you do have at least one spiritual gift. Not necessarily one of those that we consider today. We'll consider some more later in this chapter. But you will have at least one. So it's good as we go on in this study that, that you be considering that, discerning, identifying what gift you might have. The Holy Spirit has given a variety of gifts to different believers. You will not necessarily have the same gift as the person sitting next to you in the pew right now. You might well have different ones, and if we all had the same one or two gifts, we wouldn't get much done as a church. One has one gift, another has a different gift. But all believers, again, have at least one spiritual gift. So identify yours and use it. Use it for the good of the whole church. Use it to edify Christ's people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gifts to us, both the common and the more spiritual gifts. Help us to identify the spiritual gifts you've given each one of us and to use them for the benefit of the whole body of Christ. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.